0: For T.S. Eliot, April was the cruelest month. But for many of us, that honor belongs to December, when the days reach their shortest and darkest, and the happy holidays sometimes just aren't. That's why I've come bearing poetry for you on this December day as I record this podcast, poetry and poets.
1: Oh, I, I have to do it. It's central to my life. Rilke said to a young poet, if you can live without writing poetry, don't do it. Nobody needs it. Uh, but I can't live without it. I've always wanted to do it. And it's, it, makes, it makes sense of things.
2: <laughs> inspiration, where does it come from? If you look at the word inspiration, it comes from the root inspire to breathe in. And I think that all of us here know that somehow the ideas that we get come from all of life. You breathe it in, and then you try to give it back.
0: That's Rita Dove, and before her, William Stanley Merwin, better known as just W.S. Merwin, two of America's greatest poets, on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler.
2: Adam this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the
1: truth, darkness over light, death over life.
2: Every day
0: I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 decide.
1: decide. My advice is If they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for. But boy, you better not miss them.
0: Rita Dove and W.S. Merwin would not seem at first glance to have that much in common. Different genders, different ancestry, he's white, she's black different generations and geographies he was born in new york in the 1920s she in ohio in the 1950s and yet they are both poets after all people with a gift for language and an uncommon way of understanding the world and beyond that they're both extraordinary poets two of the best both pulitzer prize winners both former poet laureates of the united states For one year, they even served together with Louise Glick as special consultants to the Library of Congress for its bicentennial. And they are both members of the Academy of Achievement. Journalist Gail Eichenthal spoke to Rita Dove for the Academy in 1994, and she spoke to W.S. Merwin in 2008. So they were not interviewed together, but you'll hear their voices interwoven here because the overlaps and the contrasts are, well they're just really
1: interesting. I think poetry goes back to the invention of language itself. And I think one of the big differences between poetry and prose is that prose is about something. It's got a subject and the subject comes first and it's dealing with the subject. But poetry is something else and we don't know what it is comes first. And um, the hearing something and uh, prose is about something but poetry is about what can't be said. Poetry is, why do people turn to poetry when all of a sudden uh, the Twin Towers get hit? Or when, they're, when they're, their marriage breaks up? Or when uh, the person they love most in the world drops dead you know, in the same room? Because they can't say it. They can't say it at all. And they want something that, that addresses what can't be said. And that's, that's, I think that's a big difference between poetry and prose.
2: How
0: would you explain to someone who has never read poetry or, or read very little poetry, what it is about it that so enthralls you?
2: I think what I would try to do is to show them or talk to them about what it is about language and about music that enthralls us, because I think those are the two elements of poetry. And very often, people who are not familiar with poetry or don't know much about it are operating out of fear. At some point in their life, they've been given a poem to interpret and told that was the wrong answer, you know? Uh, I think we've all gone through that. I went through that. and and and. It's unfortunate that sometimes in schools, it, it, this need to have things quantified and graded, we end up doing this kind of multiple choice, you know, approach to something that should be as ambiguous and ever-changing as life itself. So I try to ask them, "Have you ever heard a good joke? You know, if you if you've ever heard someone tell a joke just right with the right pacing, then you're already on the way to poetry, it's really about using words in very precise ways and also using gesture as it goes through language, you know, not, not the gesture of your hands, but how language makes a, creates a mood. And if, and you know, who, who can resist a good joke? When they get that far, then you realize, then they can realize that poetry is also, can also be fun.
0: Not so scary.
2: Yeah, not so scary. It's really one of the things I try to talk about to people. Not, it's not scary.
0: And what would an episode about poetry be without poems? Let's get to one. The year Rita Dove recorded this interview, she also gave a poetry reading to delegates at the Academy of Achievement Summit in Las Vegas. And she introduced this one in the course of explaining how infinite the sources of inspiration can be.
2: In Paris, the municipal sport is to watch people. And it's not only to watch them, but also to be able to bear up under the pressure of a gaze. And those that do it best... I think are those women from the islands, from the the former colonies—Martinique, Réunion, Guadeloupe. They not only know how to strut their stuff, but they know how to stand and be admired. The island women of Paris skim from curb to curb like regatta, from Pont Neuf to the Quai de la Rappe negotiation with traffic, each a country to herself, transposed to this city by a fluke called imperial courtesy. The island women glide past, held aloft by a wire running straight to heaven. Who can ignore their ornamental bearing, turbans haughty as parrots, or deft braids carved into airy cages transfixed on their manifest brows. The island women move through Paris as if they had just finished inventing their destinations. It's better not to get in their way and better not look an island woman in the eye unless you like feeling unnecessary.
1: Thank you. When you listen to Mozart, when you, or when you listen to Shakespeare, you don't know what part of yourself is responding to it. You don't know what part of your, them it's coming from. But somewhere in between is this is this poetry, is this music. Uh, that's the mystery. I can't, I can't hold on to those notes of Mozart. I don't know the mystery of, of, of any single one line of Shakespeare, what makes it unforgettable. Just, and the, the, more you, the more you hear it, the more you think it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper.
0: Here's one of the poems that W.S. Merwin read during
1: his interview. Just now. In the morning as the storm begins to blow away, the clear sky appears for a moment, and it seems to me that there has been something simpler than I could ever believe, simpler than I have begun to find words for, not patient, not even waiting. No more hidden than the air itself that became part of me for a while with every breath that remained with me unnoticed. Something that was here unnamed, unknown in the days and the nights, not separate from them, not separate from them, as they came and were gone. It must have been here neither early nor late then By what name can I address it now, holding out my thanks?
0: W.S. Merwin has written over 50 books, most of them poetry. The first was in 1952, when W.H. Auden selected him for the oldest American literary award, the Yale Younger Poets Prize. But Merwin's also written some prose, and he's translated poems and literature from many languages, Spanish, French, Latin... Sanskrit, Middle English, Japanese, even Quechua. Interviewer Gail Eichenthal asked Merwin if he could describe how his own poems take shape. Oh, I'm sure I don't know.
1: I don't know. I don't know how it works. I really don't. It comes from hearing things rather than from having ideas. I've got I've got notes, you know, that I've made over the years and they're very precious to me, and I sometimes ponder over the notes and, and see see what I thought I was doing writing that down, you know, where it was going. And, I mean, it's come, the, the, the notes are usually things that I seem to have overheard rather than, they're not ideas. There's a wonderful conversation that, you know, Zola, no, it wasn't Zola, it was Degas. Degas and Malame, French poet Malame, were good friends for a long time. And Degas had always wanted to be a poet. And he said to Malamé, I don't understand it. He said, year after year, I've written poems, and they're terrible. I know they're terrible. I know they aren't any good at all. And he said, I don't understand it, because I have such good ideas. And Malamé said, ah, but poetry is not made with ideas. It's made with words. He said, you have to hear the words.
0: Rita Dove has also written many collections of poetry as well as essays, stories, a novel, and a play. She recently became the poetry editor for the New York Times Magazine, where she introduces a poem by a different poet each week. And she's written lyrics for composers John Williams and Tanya Leon. She says she loved writing when she was growing up in Akron, Ohio, but it took a good while for it to dawn on her that she could actually be a writer?
2: (laughs) It was a gradual thing. I thought it was something I would do for fun. And it really, well, it really wasn't until I was in college. I, I wrote, but I always thought that was something that You did as a child and then you put away childish things because I never knew any writers I didn't know writers could be real-life people the first outbreak the first instance of that Maybe it was a possible thing happened in my last year of high school because I had a high school teacher Who took me to a book signing by an author John Chardy, and that's when I saw my first live author
0: What was it about hearing John Chardy that turned you on so much?
2: I at that point, I was in 12th grade. I did not know his work. Afterwards, of course, I began to read his work. But here was a living, breathing, walking, joking person who wrote books. And for me, it was that I loved to read, but I always thought of the, that that was the dream was too far away. The person who had written the book was, was, was a god. It wasn't a person. To have someone actually in the same room with me talking and you realize he gets up, he walks his dog, the same as everybody else, was a way of saying it is possible. You can really walk through that door, too. That was the important thing.
0: When Dove looks back, though, she says she can see that the seeds were planted by her parents well before that epiphany. Her father was a chemist. In fact, most of the people in her family are scientists or mathematicians. But they revered learning and books. Going to the library, for instance, was the one place she was allowed to go without asking for permission. And at home...
2: Well, my parents had two bookshelves and the two half walls of bookshelves, and they encouraged us to read whatever we wanted. And what was wonderful about that was that the fact that they let us choose what we wanted to read for, for extra reading material. So it was a feeling of of having a book be mine entirely, not because someone assigned it to me, but because I chose to read it. There was an anthology up there, one anthology of poetry. It was a purple and gold cover, I'll never forget it, it was really thick. It went from Roman, I mean, times all the way up to the 1950s at that point. And I began to browse, I mean, I really was like browsing, I read in it a little bit. If I liked a poem by one person, I'd read the rest of them by that person. I had no idea, I was about 11 or 12 at this point, had no idea who these people were. I had heard of Shakespeare, sure, you know. But I didn't know the relative value of Shakespeare or Emily Dickinson or all of these people I was reading. So I really began to read what I wanted to read. And without anyone telling me that this was too hard, you know, you're only 11, how can you possibly understand, you know. Sarah Teasdale, or something like that, and so that's how my love affair, I think, with poetry began. This was entirely my my world, and I felt that they were whispering directly to me.
1: My mother read read to us, which is very important. She read children's she read Stevenson's Child Garden of Verses, and she read Tennyson's The Brook, and uh, uh, a lot of poems like that, and. Uh, That's wonderful when parents read not just stories but poems to their children because the the language of poetry is is different from the language of prose. And uh, children pick up that language. And if they can pick it up very early, it's really very, very important. They're likely to always love it if they do. I suspect they really naturally do. And uh, that we've got... uh, a growing-up system now and an educational system that doesn't encourage it at all, and uh, any more than they encourage listening to Mozart. And I don't think that's natural. It's not so strange. They hear it. Uh, it's too bad that it's neglected because it's, it's a whole dimension to their life that they're not getting.
0: When William Merwin was a very little boy in Union City, New Jersey, the son of a Presbyterian minister, the first things he wrote once he learned to use a pencil
1: weren't quite poems, but close. I I was fascinated by hymns. And by, you know, one of the things that most fascinated me about having to go to church every Sunday, which I, you know, one took it for granted, like putting on clean clothes on Sunday and all that. You had to go down and do that. And... Um... So I had to listen to all of these morning services. And I was allowed to do drawings and things and then do what I wanted with a little pad and pencil. And I, got, I was fascinated by two things. One of them was the language of the King James Version of the Bible, which was different from the language that we spoke, you know, the language of the Psalms. And, the, and uh, uh, there was a whole lot of the Bible that I got to know by heart without even thinking about it. And the language of the hymns, you know, the spacious firmament on high and all the blue ethereal sky. I didn't know what half the words meant. That was wonderful, you know. So I thought I'd like to and it's a funny way the way it rhymed.
0: Rita Dove remembers a much less exalted lesson in language that she learned as a young college student. It was a lesson delivered in a single poem.
2: It was a poem by Sylvia Plath called Daddy, which is a amazing poem a hate poem really to her father which which ends up saying daddy daddy you bastard i'm through now it's an incredible poem because it is it, it's sort of like a it's sort of like a nursery rhyme it rhymes in that way and yet it has this incredible vehemence and it was the first time i realized that you didn't have to be polite you know you raise our parents are always concerned to raise you as you're a little animal, you know, in society. And and I think that though they never really said directly there were things that you should or shouldn't say in, you know, in, in writing or in learning, they always encouraged you to go as far as we could. Still, I think there was this feeling that you had to be nice. I felt that. And that was an enormous release to be able to say, well... You know, it is not, o- not only the happy moments or things that should be talked about, but every moment, all the moments that make up a human being have to be written about, talked about, painted, danced in order to really talk about life. So it was liberating in that sense.
0: And there were many other inspiring lessons about writing that Rita Dove says came from her classroom teachers.
2: One was this 11th grade English teacher, 11th and 12th grade. Her name was Miss Oshner, Margaret Oshner, And she, I still still you know we still have tea together sometimes today um, I was frightened before I went to her class I heard she was a battle axe I heard that she you know would flunk you if you split an infinitive and it's true she would but she also would tell you what a split infinitive was and then you once you knew you never did it again she just opened up to me how language how the written word can also sing and And there were others, I had a ninth grade English teacher, Mr. Hicks, who um, put us in groups and and gave us impossible poems to interpret. And when I say impossible, I mean poems which had Greek in them, a little bit of Greek and a little, languages we we couldn't even read the alphabet. And he said, just tell me what it means, tell me what you think it means. And after a couple of class periods, when we decided this is so impossible, we might as well just make a wild guess, it turned out our guesses weren't so wild after all. So he taught us that to trust what your gut reaction was to something, even if you didn't understand every word to work out the context. And in college, a couple of fantastic teachers, both a um, prose teacher, teacher who taught fiction, who strolled into class the first day and said, we're gonna tell stories, who's gonna start? And we're all going, <gasps> we thought we were gonna have a chance to write it down on paper. No, he made us talk, he made us begin a story. Not, didn't have to end it, but just how are you gonna catch someone's attention? What are you gonna say right away? It was a phenomenal lesson. Listen
0: to this poem, it, of red, which certainly caught my attention with the opening line. She introduced it by explaining that she wrote the poem for her daughter, who was 11 at the time of this interview.
2: I made her do flashcards. I hated them. And she said, why did you make me do them? And I said, there are some things in life that you can't learn any other way. So this is my apology to her. Flashcards. In math, I was the whiz kid, keeper of oranges and apples. What you don't understand, master, my father said. The faster I answered, the faster they came. I could see one bud on the teacher's geranium, one clear bee sputtering at the wet pane, The tulip trees always dragged after heavy rain, so I tucked my head as my boots slapped home. My father put up his feet after work and relaxed with a highball and the life of Lincoln. After supper, we drilled, and I climbed the dark before sleep, before a thin voice hissed numbers as I spun on a wheel. I had to guess. Ten, I kept saying. I'm only ten. The thing about flashcards is that they keep coming at you, sort of like life, right?
0: And back now to W.S. Merwin. He also talked about some of his greatest teachers. One, a Mr. Sampson in high school who sparked his love for foreign languages, especially Spanish. And that led him to a Spanish professor in college, who introduced him to the first modern poet he ever read, Federico Garcia Lorca. Merwin ended up helping his professor translate Lorca's work. Then there was poet John Berryman, another of his professors at Princeton, who ruthlessly ripped apart his work week after week, but made him a better poet. And not long after college, Merwin decided he wanted to meet another modern poet he'd fallen for, Ezra Pound who was then a patient at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in what Merwin called the Crazy
1: Ward. Yeah, he was in the Crazy Ward. They, they, he was there. They, he was legally insane. Uh, I didn't know anything about his politics, fortunately, and his anti-Semitism and dreadful things. Uh, and it would have been very, it's always been very troubling once I did find out about it. But I, I loved some of his poems that I'd read. And his, his ear, every poet who's come after owes him something. That's part of the enigma about Pop. Whatever they think about his character and his, you know, we owe him something from the way he heard English. And um, so I went to see him, and uh, he said uh, that I had to, you know, go on translating. He took me seriously as a poet, and he said... Uh, you should write every day, and you should do all these things and He gave me a lot of advice. He loved giving advice
2: <laughs> did you see signs of the dementia or
1: no he he wasn't he wasn't mad. I mean he was no more mad than he'd ever been he was he was nuts, but I mean not mad uh, he uh, he had gone on the air for Mussolini, and he'd said he'd had he'd said really quite quite stupid, but very, very ill-judged things, bad things, um, pro-Mussolini, in the middle of the war. And, and the prosecution wanted to shoot him for a traitor, you know, right there in Italy. And there was a movement to prevent that, and he got a, and the, the, his, his defense lawyer was a Quaker. And the safest thing to do was to say he was insane.
0: W.S. Merwin had plenty of other interesting stories in this interview about his encounters with poets, his visit to Robert Graves in France, for instance, which led him to a tutoring gig with Graves' son, and ultimately to buying a broken-down farmhouse in a peasant village where he lived for years and communed with nature. That was before he moved to Hawaii and began the grand project of restoring a barren pineapple plantation into a forest preserve of rare palms. man's alienation from nature has been one of the frequent themes in Merwin's work. Interviewer Gail Eichenthal also pointed out he seemed to have a preoccupation with time.
1: Yeah, doesn't everybody? You know, um, time, is, time is a fiction. It's a human fiction. Uh, there's a reality, but we don't know what the reality is. I mean, you know, the uh, the watch and the time that, that we're going by is a fiction that we've agreed to. But we don't know that it's true, you know, and it's, what its relation is to time and the universe. And, of course, time to us. Throw away the watches and throw away the, the chronology of all kinds. But time is really experience. Time, time is just... I mean, when we're... When we're uh, in love and and wanting to see the the person we're in love with, time goes very, very slowly. And the moment we're with them, it goes like lightning, you know. The trouble about being happy is that everything goes so fast. And uh, and being in jail, it must must creep along incredibly slowly. Uh, I don't know that this is true to the same degree for animals as for us. I mean, a great deal of that fiction must be a human fiction. I don't know why I think that but I don't think my dog feels time the same way that we do.
0: And closely linked to the theme of time of course is the theme of death. W.S. Merwin put his stamp on it many times including in a wonderful poem called The Anniversary of My Death. The
1: anniversary of My Death was written ooh about uh, almost 40 years ago I think. anniversary of my death. Every year, without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out, tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman, And the shamelessness of men. As today, writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease, and bowing, not knowing to what. You know, sometimes when people write about it, they say, "Oh, that's terribly morose," or uh, "very, very dark," and all that. They're, they're, I think they're they're kidding themselves. I mean, death is part of every moment of our lives. I mean, it's always there with us. It doesn't mean that we have to be gloomy about it. It's uh, it's, it's it, but it's always there. I mean, uh, yesterday is gone, hasn't it? Um, what we have and what we're what we're blessed with is this very moment, with with the whole of our past in it. And the whole of the unknown future in it, and, but it's all here. And uh, it's going as fast, faster than we can talk about it. Oh, but both of those are true at the same time. Are you going to sit and be gloomy about it? Uh, some people are terrified of dying. Uh, I'm very lucky. My mother was never in the least frightened by the thought of death. It was there in front of her all the time, because she was an orphan. She lost both parents by the time she was six. Her grandmother took care of her until her grandmother died when she was 12. Uh, then uh, her, her brother uh, quit his education to take jobs so that he could support both of them, and he died when he was in, before he was 30. And when she married, she lost her first child and 15 minutes after it was born, nobody knows why. I think the hospital made some mistake. um, So she'd had her whole youth, was one death right after another. She, death had, you know, it's as though she'd always known about it. It was always right there. And she wasn't afraid of it at all. And, I worried about my father on that subject. But his last words were, I'm not afraid. He died. I think that's a great gift from parents. I don't know, uh, you know, one would be very rash to say uh, how one feels about it, but I I don't, I certainly don't think of it with constant, uh, you know, seizures of panic or anything of the kind, it seems to me. The bus comes along, you get on, you
0: know? I cannot think of a more reassuring description. It's a line I certainly plan to steal. But we're not going to end there at death. Both interviews with W.S. Merwin and Rita Dove ended with discussions about what they tell young people who ask for advice about becoming a
2: poet. The first thing I tell them is to read. I mean, I feel that if they don't read... If they don't love reading, if they don't find themselves compulsively reading like, like print as they walk by, you know, shopping, mall, anything, then I don't think they're really a writer. Then it's the ego talking, because inherent in the idea of being a writer is to have the whole continuum, have the whole circle be completed. You know, that feeling as a writer that you are writing, someone else is going to pick this up and read it, and it's not completed until that person reads it. If you haven't taken part in that continuum, how can you even know how it's going to work? That's the first thing. The next thing I tell them to do is to, um, well, Hemingway once said that more writers fail from lack of character than lack of talent. You know, it is not a question of sitting down under a tree and having inspiration come down. If you wait for inspiration, the is gonna go away and look for more fertile ground to work with. There's a lot of work involved in it too. There's a lot of feeling that you're almost there, but you don't, you don't even know how to get to that point in the poem, and then you just simply keep working. You keep writing, you keep rewriting. And to know that everyone goes through that and that's part of the process and it's actually a fun part of the process. Uh, it's, it's very important too. I think I would also tell them that they can only write what, this sounds corny, but they can only write what they feel. That doesn't mean they have to have experienced it. But to write something for, because someone else thinks it's right to write that, to write for PC reasons, to write because you think you ought to be dealing with this subject, it's never going to yield anything that is really going to matter to anyone else. It has to matter to you. And uh, come what may, even if it just doesn't seem to be at all socially acceptable, if that's how you feel, that's really what you
1: have to write. It's all about attention and the the listening. Pay attention and listen. Listen to everything, listen to absolutely everything. Listen to the sounds you don't want to hear, listen to the ones you do want to hear, listen to the people talking around you. Uh, sure, there was a wonderful thing this morning about taking the bus every so often. I was saying to Paula the last, as we went through New York. I used to love riding on the subway because, I, you know, I don't have to have something to read. I'm just sort of fascinated by everybody around me. You know, the, what they're saying and what they're doing, and uh, uh, it's it's paying attention, but it's listening, listening. And all of a sudden, you hear something. It may be, it may be. Uh, a phrase that you've heard over and over again, but you suddenly, suddenly got electricity in it, you know. And that, those are those are the notes, you know. You take it out what, what is that little charge in there, and where does it want to go? And uh, You may not even know what it's about, but it's all about all, you know. All if you if you tried to write something new all the time, or as I have all all your life, it seems to change, but. It's really, if you're telling the truth in the, in the essential place where you don't know, it really is all, it's all you that's coming out and it's, uh, nobody else can write it. And that's, 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 that's what you want. That's what you want. That, that's what you want to make students see, you know, listen. Don't don't listen. Chuang Tzu is a great, great Taoist, uh, Probably as much as almost 3,000 years ago said when I say that someone is Has is good at hearing. I do not mean that they are good at hearing anything else. I Mean that they are good at hearing themselves That's that's what that's what that's what the attention is about
2: Being true to yourself really means being true to the to all the complexities of the human spirit and as much as we'd like to give and we want to be perfect, well-rounded individuals, all of us have our quirks. We all know we've had our foibles and we've got these these embarrassing moments in our lives and things that we're ultimately ashamed of. What writing, what I think all the arts do is to reveal, to let us see again and experience again all the ambiguities that make up and the contradictions that make up a human being, the good and the bad and how they can exist in one person and and, and, and make a complex individual. And to do that, that means being very honest, being honest all the time.
0: And being honest, W.S. Merwin says, means remembering that no matter how smart you are, no matter how much you know, you must always embrace your ignorance. You
1: know, our knowledge, the whole of human knowledge. Look at the night sky. How big is our knowledge? I mean, it's, we're, we're tiny, you know, it's, it's dust. Uh, that's, not, that's not, it's tiny. The, the, the unknown that surrounds it is, it's uh, where it all came from, it's the great mystery. We, we don't know where it came from. How come we're here? Not how come is where, not, so it's every bit as interesting as where we're going. How come, how come we're here at all? Isn't that amazing, really? Out of the whole of the universe, out of the whole of what we think of as time, here we are. That's W.S.
0: Merwin and Rita Dove, both of them former Poet Laureate consultants in poetry to the Library of Congress, a position better known as United States Poet Laureate. Rita Dove held the title from 1993 to 1995, and W.S. Merwin from 2009 to 2010. Together, they also served as special consultants in poetry for the Library of Congress's bicentennial year. Merwin still lives and writes in Maui on the 19 acres he and his wife restored to a tropical forest with over 900 varieties of palm trees. His most recent books of poetry are Garden Time, The Essential W.S. Merwin, and a new translation in verse of Dante's Purgatorio. And the reason he chose that volume rather than Dante's Inferno or Paradiso, the Purgatorio, he says, is more like life. Rita Dove lives in Charlottesville, Virginia, where she is the Commonwealth Professor of English at UVA. She's also the New York Times Magazine poetry editor. Her most recent book, Collected Poems, was a finalist for the National Book Award. And it's just too good not to mention here, her poetry collection, On the Bus with Rosa Parks, was sparked by her participation in the Academy of Achievement's 1995 summit in Colonial Williamsburg. As she notes in the book, the delegates and honored guests were on an outing when her 11-year-old daughter leaned over and whispered in her ear, hey, we're on the bus with Rosa Parks, a phrase that reverberated for a very long time. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. We are grateful to them and to you for listening.